Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Altitude training is all the rage, whether you're a top-class amateur or professional. Everybody wants to go high, but does it really work? This is what we're discussing in this episode of the Science of Sport podcast. The Science of Sports podcast with Professor Ross Tucker and sports journalist Mike Finch. So welcome to another episode of the Science of Sport podcast. My name is Mike Finch, and as usual, I'm here with Professor Ross Tucker. And today we're going to be tackling a subject which, uh, on the face of it, seems to be quite a simple conclusion that you can reach. Does altitude training work? And we see many of the top elite uh, sportsmen, whether they're runners or cyclists or cross-country skiers, going to high altitude before major events, and they come back and they perform well. And therefore, the understanding is that uh, you're always going to do well if you train at altitude for a certain amount of time. But is it as simple as that? And that's what we're going to get into in a short bit. But before we do that, we're going to be wrapping up with some of the news that's been on the world of uh, sports science over the last couple of weeks. And also some uh, caught my eyes from our Patreon members who have been very active as usual on our Patreon channels. Don't forget, if you want to support us on Patreon, you can go to uh, patreon.com and look for Science of Sport podcast. And for a small amount of money per month, you can be part of our Patreon community where there are lots of discussions. I know that Ross uh, spends a lot of time on there and also often sends out a newsletter, which adds a little bit more to uh, the discussions around that. So it's a good place to uh, really get your, your sports science nerd Phil is right there at the Patreon, uh, Patreon page. So let's kick off with uh, most recent happenings, and that was the uh, Tour de Femmes. I hate, I know Ross absolutely oh, hates this me. because the commentator says this every single time, but the Tour de Femmes avec Swift. Tour de France Femme avec Swift. Tour de France Femme avec Swift. And you can't say Tour de France without saying yeah. Femme avec Swift. Femme avec Apparently Swift. Every and it's illegal. It's a legal obligation for every commentator and person in the media to say it. I actually watched it on mute. I know. <laughs> I get it when you're doing like an event and it's you, it's part of the commercial mm. uh, almost DNA of the of the thing. But when you're saying in the race, mm. has never won a stage in the Tour de mm. France from Avex Swift. You don't need to say <laughs> that every say that. single time. He's obviously been told, Ant McCrossan and the guys, that they need to say that. Everyone does it though. Yeah. The podcast I listen to also do it. So I, I think Zwift has come in and they said, "Look, we're going to back this." But, but because I used money. to work a bit in sports sponsorship, and I know you've dealt many times Oof, with advertisers, yeah. and in the sports sponsorship space, that naming right is really valuable to them. So they've obviously said, maybe there's a penalty for every time someone doesn't say it. But it drove me mad. <laughs> I think the worst versions of those is the way they've renamed stadiums so you think about the Emirates Stadium in England yeah it absolutely kills me it's the same here in South Africa we have the DHL Stadium and we have the yeah, I think yeah. the one in Durban is 
can't remember now offhand, but well, it's the, another sponsor. It, it's uh, Yeah, I forget, but I did read this morning that the Sharks used to be called the Sal Sea Sharks. That's a mobile company back here, folks. That's like mm. saying the Vodafone Sharks. Yes. It's now called Hollywood Bets Sharks, Sharks. which is a sports betting company. <laughs> so, like, now the team name is a betting. It's so poor. And in Durban, you can't go anywhere because I basically think that Durban sport is sponsored by Hollywood Bets because it's absolutely everywhere. Every mm. single stadium, every single sports team, they're obviously making a lot of money. But, uh, yeah. One of the one of this is not sports science at all. <laughs> one of the challenges of that is that you name it till it becomes part of the sort of vernacular. Mm. We used to have in this country a cricket competition called Benson and Hedges Day Night Cricket. That's right. And ten years after Benson and Hedges withdrew, because it's a cigarette company, so they were forced to withdraw, people still used to call it the Benson and Hedges because it became so part of the which is a sign of how well it works. Yeah. But in four years' time when Zwift stops sponsoring the Tour de France farm, Avec, who's it gonna be next? You know? Yeah. So anyway, it's a Tour de France for women and it was a good race in the end. It was. Well, let's talk about the race very briefly. Um, Demi Vollering, obviously the winner, and uh, getting the win on that big stage at the up the Tourmalé. Obviously, from us here in South Africa, we were hoping for Ashley Moorman Passio mm. to uh, potentially win that stage, and she did very well, finished fourth, but uh, not able to hang with Vollering, who, looking at her, didn't, doesn't look like a classic climber, but was just able to art muscle everybody else and and not able no, and, and dominated in the time trial on the final so day. much better than everyone else yeah she was fantastic i mean it, the, she attacked with five and a half to go and put two and a half minutes into van floten mm. she <laughs> she caught new Adoma in about literally 30 seconds yeah, which is unbelievable and she was 30 seconds ahead of her it's actually teleported to the mm. front of the race and and i was looking actually they do the usual calculations of the performances and it was it was up there with some of the best performances ever documented in women cyclists. The uh-huh. estimate was for the fifty-four minutes, sorry, not fifty, well, almost fifty-four, fifty-three, forty-two that she did the tourmaline average would be five point one watts a kilo, and in the points of attack over those last six kilometers, say so it was five point six watts a kilogram for twenty-one minutes. So that is, those are some pretty hefty numbers. I mean, we spoke last week actually on how good mm. these top these top women actually are. But she was just one level. It was like two two levels in that race, you know. So put, into, put into into context what a, a male cyclist would do over those times. There's six watts a kilo than what a male cyclist would do over About that sort of time. that for the 45. Oh. That was the estimate, remember, for Pogaccia mm. and Vinegar. They did that climb, the same tourmalade this year, in 45 minutes. Mm. And we, of course, had all that debate about Vinegar in the time trial, doing about 7.4 for 15 minutes. They were at about 7.1 for 20 minutes. The volume is 5.6. So it's typically the difference, right? It's between 14 and 17%. Mm. But, yeah, it was an, it, you know, I just said it was a good race. The GC race wasn't really all that interesting. Yeah, it was kind of static for the it, over it, those hilly stages in the first sort of six like, stages. It did nothing for five days, and yeah. then everything happened actually in one day, and then there was a time trial to confirm it the day after. So, as far as GC Grand Tours goes, probably not memorable. I reckon it wasn't even as good as the Vuelta and the Giro earlier this year. Yeah, um, but it produced a series of really good individual stages. Yeah. But yeah, the yeah. but the GC, I thought it would be a more um, competitive race between Van Floyten and Valuing, but maybe age just mm. you know you can 
you can fight age for so long and then it's like going bankrupt as you get old mm. you get it's like going old happens slowly then all at once <laughs> well, I mean, let's face it from <laughs> maybe Fetten, that's what it is well from Fetten is the world champion I mean she's not exactly past her prime although well, she's due to retire this year last year for your bicycling mag I named her cyclist of the year because she won yeah. all three of the grand tours available to the woman plus some of the classics mm. I mean she was the best yeah by a lot but and, she wouldn't have gone down by that much in a year especially yeah, when I she's been in the peak I think two things are happening in women's cycling like the exposure the sponsorship Avex Swift um, <laughs> the the, uh, the the professionalism the fact that more teams are not paying riders salaries the prize money's better everything is a little bit better the mm. the quality of the sports as a whole is probably going up and she can't match that rate of increase because she was already at the top mm. so everyone's catching up and she might be going down so at some point in the last six, seven months, they passed one another, you know. She was on a trajectory that was different to Vollering, and now that we saw where they are today, I think mm. it was pretty clear. Vollering was pretty impressive in the time trial as well, wasn't she? Yeah, I mean... It's, so she's the complete cyclist. Yeah, because she remember she won the Ardennes triple. Yeah. The other, the other cyclist who got a lot of um, plaudits for what was, I think, in the end, a surprising podium was Kopecky. Yes. Because that's, that's a Kopecky. Flanders... Yeah, yes. she didn't win Roubaix, but she hung on to that climb a lot longer than anybody said she was going to hang yeah. on. Yeah, and then time trialed really well the next day, mm. also. And so, which brings me to the point is that I don't think that the route in the women's tour specialises or, or allows for specialisation of of discipline within road cycling as much as the men's does yet. In part because there's only one Monday. Yeah. On Monday, at TT, well, and then all five punches, stages days. up until then, yeah. Right, and yeah. so actually the whole route looked like a Kopecky route until those two days, and then she surpassed expectations there. Mm. So it'll be interesting to see how that route evolves. I think 10 days would be better than seven, eight stages. Maybe it was eight yeah, stages, it was right? Because it goes yeah. Sunday to Sunday. Yeah. Um, and, I th- and and yeah, so I think I think they need a few more mountains. They need a bit more variety. be lovely to see some crosswind flat stages. See, yeah. how the, see how that goes. I think the dynamics would be changed mm. a little bit if that were the case. But they need – I suppose the problem they've got is that there's this gulf. Imagine there were two mountain stages in this year's Tour de France and one was on the third day. The race would have been done then. That's potentially the problem, yeah. That's always the issue. Yeah. So that's inter- – yeah, I mean, it was a – but definitely when you looked at the crowds and the coverage and the interest in it it seems like it stepped up from last year which was mm-hmm. the first one so that's progression mm-hmm. and so this is cool i hope the next progression is a longer race with longer stages well that's a question from one of yeah. our patrons ian's mm. who suggested that why are the differences in the stages i mean that stage up the tombola was only 85 kilometers mm. so really short in terms of men's racing yeah and i noted it at that time how long it took it was like three hours so okay so it's still a three-hour day yeah but the men are doing four and a half. Now, it's an interesting question, this, because as many listeners might know, women were only allowed in the Olympic marathon in 1984. Yeah. Women only did the 800, I think, in 1928. And then some of them collapsed and everyone said, no, no, this is not safe for women to run this far, 800 meters. <laughs> and so there is some historical constraint to how far we allow women to run, which is insane. Yeah. Because in actual fact, there's lots of biology and physiology suggests that women are every bit of capable of doing ultra long distances as males are. In fact, some people have said that the performance difference would narrow the longer we go. I haven't seen that evidence and I don't think it's true, but there's a... 
In fact, there's a review came out just last week, which I'm bringing up next time. It, it caught my eye, but didn't make today's show. But like in mountain biking, for instance, and cyclocross, the women also race shorter distances, but it's it's controlled by the time available for the race, yes? Yes. So they set it that you're going to do six laps. The men are going to do seven, maybe eight, depending on how fast they go. So, so that I can understand. And if you said that the women's tour and the men's tour were going to have stages that were on average four hours long, fine. But they seem to be going even shorter time-wise, mm. which means distance is a lot shorter because the speeds are 10, 15% lower. Mm. Mm. And there is no biological reason that the women can't race 160 to 180K every day if the men are racing 200. Yeah, yeah. I so mean, is it road closure costs yeah. that's driving that? I suppose it's based on what most the length of most women's cycling events, and they're using that as a as I guess a base level to decide mm. how long the stages should be. And I think ba- based on some of the talk I've seen, there's obviously a lot of consultation with the riders. Although Demi Wallering did suggest that potentially they need to do a stage like the men do on the final day and have a sort of a parade day, yeah. uh, where they finish, you know, with a, with a couple of laps of the Champs Elysees, mm. but. You know, so I, I think there is some discussion, and I think that the riders themselves are involved in that discussion. So yeah. interesting to be a fly on the wall at, it would when be. those discussions happen. And also to know, like, what's the five-year plan? Like, what do they think the women's tour looks like in 2030? Yeah. Are they are they trying to progress it to the point that it goes to a 10-day or even a two-week race, mm. and then you have the room to put a processional sprint stage at the finish, which I think is cool. Yeah. You've also got some space for a rest day. You've got some space for variety in the course in two or three mountain days, you know. Then, and and then even this year they did a they did a stage that was 166k, and everyone was saying how brutally long and so on it was. That those that 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 should I think, well, no, not I think. I wonder whether they are working towards that being the norm because there's no reason why it couldn't be. Because mm. that's still a four to four and a half hour day. Yeah, and that's reasonable. I mean, there's no. You know, they used to say, oh, women, women won't be able to have babies. Their ovaries will fall out mm. if they cycle too long. It's all nonsense. There's no, I can't see the reason why it would need to be shorter. Mm. And the only reason it is now is historical. You know, I remember they used to wedge the women's Paris-Roubaix in. Just let them, let them do a little bit. Yeah, it's almost, and, yeah. And are they, are they it's trying almost to, tokenish. Yeah, tokenish. And are yeah. they trying to evolve away from that to the point that actually the men's tour and the women's tour take... Well, now I'm doing bad maths. 80 hours to win. Okay, the women's would be two weeks, so call it 50 to 60 hours to win. Or are they happy for it to be a mm. shorter race also? Because women, like I don't, you know, Chris, remember Chris Country Running had this debate. The men ran 12K, the women ran eight. Why? Mm. Now they run 10 each. Good. That's how it should be. Yeah. So yeah. it's, yeah, we'll see where it goes. Yeah, I always think it's something that probably comes down to economics because the cost of putting on a three day, three week stage race versus a 10 day or an eight day is obviously significant. Yes. And whether the same amount of money exists in the women's sport at the moment, I would argue probably isn't the case. Yeah. And so yeah. then the dilemma is, well, if you, if you don't, if you don't accept that there's going to be some negative outcome, like as in more cost than income for a short time they'll never change that balance mm. and in 2030 it'll look the same as it does today so mm. are they trying to actively change that balance because if they are they have to force it a little bit because you know it's like inertia the thing will just stand there unless you put some force onto it it's a bit like you were discussing last week was it article 9 in the US 
Yeah, Title Nine. Title Nine, exactly. where all the money spent in men's sport actually has to be the same in women's sport. I, mm. I I'm pretty sure it's not the same in France, but it'd be interesting if that was the case in terms of what sponsors are doing. Then you might see it. Yeah, and the problem, if, you, if you clicked your fingers and said, as from now, that has to happen, sport would go bankrupt. Yes. Yeah, and so you sure. have to be quite um, pragmatic mm. about yeah, it. That's there are, reali- there are realities, yeah. There, sure. there are, but you've got to work towards it. And and look, we're not. I'm not being critically. I'm saying that there's. I see. Last year was a massive leap forward to have a tour. Mm. This year was a step forward. Next year, what's the next step? What's yeah. the next? Are they, or are they happy where they are? I hope not. Mm. I, I find it great to watch, to be honest. Yeah, I, think I think it was, it was, it was really fantastic good, to watch. Yeah. I watched it as much as I could, mm. as much as I, and probably I watched more days than I watched in the men's race, to be honest, because I found it more interesting and I was mm. obviously interested in the big South African hope there. But uh, yeah, it's on, on, will, onwards and upwards, I reckon. For I will that. say what the sport needs generally, year. not just tour-wise, is it needs, it needs for one team to not be that dominant. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the men's sport, the men's cycling is almost the same with Yumbo and UAE. SD works, isn't it? But, but the dominance yeah. of SD works is yeah. outrageous. Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's outrageous. They've got all the... They're the only team to have the yellow jersey, were they? Yeah, because Kopecky gave it to Vollering. That's right. And so they won half the stages. They took two out of three podium spots. Yeah. I mean, it's and just... They, yeah. Earlier this year, there was a race where they got every single podium in like mm. a four-day race. Like mm. 12 out of 12. Mm. <laughs> I mean, it's like they basically took turns. Very winning. happy sports director. <laughs> so so um, I, th- I think, and I think as the sport evolves, that should hopefully go away because mm. it shouldn't be that one team is that dominant because mm. they are. They can win TT. They can win sprint days. They've got the mm. world's best sprinter, the world's best rollier puncher, mm. the world's best climber, world's best mm. I mean, time, tra- everything. Yeah, it's a good position to it's, be in. Uh, and so that needs, I think that needs mm. to be addressed actually, because yes. even even the even the pattern of this year's race was set by everyone being passive in response to SD Works, you know. It should and be then a, SD Works were passive, and it, it it was like watching poker. I often think it should be a little bit like when we watch the I and mean, compete in the Tour de France Fantasy League, where you're only allowed to choose a certain amount of riders, <laughs> but some riders are more valuable than others, but you only have a certain budget to play well, with. Well, that's what salary <laughs> caps would achieve. <laughs> exactly. That's what salary yeah. caps. That's what they do yeah. in American sport, and that's why the NFL is what it is yeah and they yeah. try to do that in like that's rugby true. and so on but it doesn't yeah. but that's where you got to go like it's yeah competitive mm. competitive jeopardy as um some people would call it or uncertainty is is sport's most valuable asset and if you know if the women's tour happen again next year like it did this year mm. like i don't think it has all that much of it in the gc race stage by stage like a lot because who knew who was going to win those stages? It was a complete lottery. But GC race, mm. it's like there's one yeah. team that's just too good. And it's one right rider that's too good. Yeah, good idea. Yeah. On to some news. And this was an interesting one. The US marathon trials taking place in Florida yeah. at midday. Mm. Now, when I saw this point that you put up, I, I don't actually understand why they would do that. Because well, when I think of Florida, I think it, it, it being the hottest part of the day. Yeah. And so, I, my first thought was, oh, that's clever. They want to they want to select Olympic marathon runners for the conditions of the Olympic marathon. Well, that's my first thought, but that doesn't make sense either. Well, because? Well, because you're going to get obviously slower times. Yeah. And so, yeah. So there's some nuance in this because of the Is US the Paris system. Olympics supposed to be held on a very hot day? Well, warm, right? Because it's it's, it's Paris be, in July, so it's yes. not it's not Beijing, Athens, uh, Los yeah. Angeles in four years time, yes. five years time. But so still what, warm. So what is the thinking then? 
It turns out the thinking's TV because they they want the whole country oh, to goodness. be able to watch it. And because it's going to be live, they don't want the West Coast to have to wake up at 5 a.m. to watch a race on the East Coast. All right, so they've put it at a time that would allow the whole country to watch the race live on NBC, which is cool. I mean, I think it's good for marathons to be on TV. You, you know, exposure is good for sport. But the downside, of course, is they've created the situation of Florida in February, which is not as hot as you might think because it is like late, mid, mid to late winter. Yeah. And so the guys at Let's Run did an analysis over the last five or six years. The average temperature at that time of the day is in the low to mid 70s Fahrenheit, which is in the 20s Celsius, 25 mm. degrees Celsius range. Mm. So that's warm, but it's not. I mean, if you ran Comrades or Two Oceans and you finished at that temperature, you'd call it a comfortable day. So, so depending what you are used to. Those athletes' challenge is going to be that if they're training in Boulder or Maine or even Utah, whatever it is, in Feb, it's going to be quite hard for them to get heat adaptation to go to Florida to run a race. So they'll be coming from 40 degrees to 70 degrees, and that's a challenge heat-wise. So it's going to throw a... It's going to throw a challenge in the way of some athletes. There'll be athletes who are based out of Phoenix and places like that where it will be warmer and they'll be fine. I mean, I'm maybe showing my lack of U.S. geography and weather knowledge now. But <laughs> um, but the point is that, that I, th- I think it, whilst it's been done for TV, I think it does actually make sense for the Olympics. Like you would want to select athletes who've shown the ability to tolerate heat and maybe more importantly, apply themselves to prepare for heat because that's what the Olympics will ask of them. And we've seen it before, like Dina Castor and Meb back in Athens, was it, winning medals? That's because they were smarter and able to prepare for heat that that marathon would throw at them. When all these athletes are so accustomed to running mm-hmm. London, Chicago, Berlin, New York, when it's cool and perfect weather conditions. So the Olympics is unique and therefore set your trials up to mimic that. So that, that bit actually is, I think, quite good, you know? Yeah, I suppose it makes sense. I always think that you're, I guess you're choosing the best athlete for the conditions. Yeah. And I suppose what we've always said in this podcast is that what you want to see in any race is you want to see good competition as opposed to necessarily always faster times. Mm. So if they have slower times, that doesn't necessarily affect the competition they might yeah. have on the day because it's it's based on placings isn't it yeah they, they pick top three now yeah. where it gets interesting is the times. US the US will pick top three from the marathon times but they also have to have the marathon qualifier as yeah. per world athletic yeah. standards so there, there could well be scenarios where the guy comes first second third or whatever in that marathon trial mm. doesn't hit the time so they've got to run effectively what they're doing is they're saying you've got to run two marathons good marathons in the lead up to the Olympics one has to be in the Olympic trials Time doesn't matter, position does, and the other has to be somewhere else where you could come seventh as long as you run a fast time. Then that combination gets you on the plane. So you can do the combo there. You can do that combo, but now you're asking the person to run a... So so really what they should just do, and World Athletics in theory should allow to say, top three, you're in. That's your criteria. But then you're sort of making an exception on qualifying time. So there's some nuances. So 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 World Athletics dictates that 
I should know this, but World Athletics dictates that qualifying time, do they? In other well, words, you have to do that. Yeah, and that kind of goes I, against the Olympic thoughts of inclusion, doesn't it? They make some exemptions, right? And that's why you will see. Um, okay, it's not athletics now, but Eric the Eel <laughs> from yes. Sydney, the swimmer. But in a way, that's you, what the Olympics is about. Yeah, and so they do allow for some countries who don't have other qualif- any qualifying athletes to submit their best athletes and exempted from qualifying times. And that happens in athletics as well. Having a qualifying time doesn't guarantee that you go. This week, in mm. fact, in the in, in the UK, there's been a big controversy because they've named their team for Budapest and a lot of athletes with qualifying times are left off that team. And they've said, and you'll recognize this because this has been a South African policy for a long time, is we'll only send you if you are a viable finalist or medalist. Yes. Remember that policy? And it meant like Dom Scott didn't go back in 2017 right. or something. I forget which year it was, okay. 15 perhaps. And so there's a, there's a tension between like, okay, you've hit the qualifying time. Does that mean you go? But if you don't hit the qualifying time, they generally don't, you, you don't go. So, and mm. I think World Athletics is trying to evolve that. So big into with Seb Co this week talking about using a world ranking system instead, kind of like triathlon users to get athletes into world, world Olympics, yeah. for instance. And so it may well change, but yeah, at the moment you'd have to run a time and then come top three at the US trials. Mm problem with the world ranking system and I was my brother was a, big, a victim of this is that the world problem with world rankings is you have to then do all these qualifying events mm. which means not always the best athletes get yeah, into those rankings it's just the ones that can afford to, to yeah, go to all the events it's a resource selection Correct. exactly yeah, so yeah that, so that's, that's, that's the not, problem that's also very unfair yeah. Yeah. but I, I do think and again, we spoke a little bit a few months back when the Paris Marathon course was announced. Is it, remember, it's hilly and there's one, there's one long, and I'm not going to say steep. It's not like Comrades Marathon mm. or even coming down from Constantia Neck past Kirstenbosch steep. But it's a, it's a longish gradual descent into a flat road towards the finish. And that's a very specific demand when you're trying to run a 205, 206 or a 217, 218 marathon. And so... The, the Paris Marathon is already going to throw at athletes a, a, a challenge that I'll loosely call like an eccentric muscle damage management challenge. <laughs> yeah. You're going to damage your quads coming down, and then it's going to be a test to see who can run a fast 10K with fatigue mm. and damaged quads. And if you don't prepare mm. specifically for that, you won't medal, medal. Then add heat. So I think it's good because... It means that the Paris Marathon will test something more than just the ability to run a 203 on a flat course in perfect conditions. So that's cool. what we've always said. Yeah. And the more US Olympic trials will increase this, the circumstance, will improve their likelihood of finding that athlete. Hmm. Do you know any idea what the Florida course looks like? Apparently it's dead flat. So what they haven't... <laughs> they haven't... <laughs> well, the bang goes that there. They haven't created the course to match Paris, but they've yes. got the weather. <laughs> Okay, but 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 again, if I was them, I'd say right. I'm going to find a place that can simulate the course and the conditions, and I'm going to actually call my trials a rehearsal. Mm. That's what you're doing. Mm. It's true. And then obviously you still need a fast runner because you're not going to beat a Kenyan with a 212, even on a hilly course on a hot day. Because mm. 212 versus 204, even if the 204 mm. is not prepared for heat or the course, he's still going to run 29, and you're not there. We can assume the Kenyans are going to be prepared for heat. Well, that's the interesting thing is often not because they, they really do try and avoid it. Um, mm. That's why I like Baldini won that marathon. Yeah, in Stefano uh, Baldini, the fastest European in history. Yeah. Um, and, and that's why they, I think the Olympic marathons throw up surprises because the Kenyans mm. are surprisingly not that good at the heat. Mm. Mm. Yeah. 
Okay, um, other news. This is a message from Dan P., one of our new patron members. He says, hi all. I'm a new patron supporter from Australia. And he says he's been loving our Caught My Eye segments. And he talks a little bit about there's been a big weekend for concussion in Australian media and AFL netball. Um, talking about um, AFL um, rules in junior AFL and early retirement for 24-year-old Ruckman. Um, so that's an interesting story because yeah. it, it is big so, news. We often think about concussion as being a bit of a, a side story and specific to podcasts like ours. But mm. it is big news because it, particularly when it is affecting potentially younger players. Yeah, and, that, and Australia has been involved in a parliamentary inquiry for a few months now. I remember back in about March, April, like we, we had to send some statistics over to someone who was testifying at that inquiry and they needed to know the concussion rates in boys and girls in different age groups all the way through to adults. And so we gave some data to them for that hearing. And subsequently, I know of a few people who've testified about various things, how concussion is prevented, diagnosed, managed, long-term effects. So they're diving into this big time. And it's UK did it a while back and then ended up coming up with guidelines that looked like they were written by people who'd never worked in the space. And that's mm. one, of the, it's one of the problems is that there's a balance has to be sought between letting the people who are inside the world and who see the patients, who see the players, who understand the real challenges, but who might be quote unquote compromised by their own immersion in it mm. and external experts who then come and look at it with a new perspective from outside and how you figure out that tension because there's no doubt that the outside perspective might bring some new insights and some different perspectives and solutions potentially that haven't been seen because mm. you know it's it's hard when you're in the weeds to have a take a big picture but at the same time like it's quite frustrating for some of the people and I I guess I include myself here. Yeah. We understand why we're doing what we're doing based on evidence. And this, and is, this is based on your role at World Rugby. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, for instance, what, like after a concussion, how soon can the player return to play? Mm. Like we understand the tensions between saying we must have three weeks off. That's what some outsiders are saying we should do. We're saying if we said every concussion needs three weeks off, half the players wouldn't tell us that they had symptoms of a concussion because there would be a punishment for telling us. They'd miss three weeks. And if you miss three weeks as an elite rugby player, you lose your spot in the team. Yeah. And then your season ends and your contract's not renewed and you're out of it. So yeah. you understand the human incentives that are driving mm. under-reporting. And then they say, but you just got to educate them better. It's like people are educated about the dangers of smoking and drinking yet they still do it mm. so you don't understand human behavior if you've got a simplistic and so but then i sometimes wonder to myself are, are we being are we being narrow-minded and defensive because we're immersed and we don't want to change you know, people are resistant to change so they are going to be struggling with the same thing mm. but two things came up and the one was dan is that the afl are now considering helmets to try and cut down on Head injuries. I can just imagine and the Aussies having a proper go at this on social media if they do enforce that. <laughs> yes. And so, and rugby is considered headgear. Well, now, I was going to say, I, it's like putting rugby helmets on rugby players. Yeah. So let's, let's, let's be, for the sake of clarity, define a helmet as what yeah. you see on an American football player yes. and headgear and what you see in a rugby player. The difference being helmet is a much larger, rounder, hard-shelled helmet, like a bicycle helmet, but you right. know, American football one. Headgear is that soft padded one. Mm. There's no evidence at all yet that those soft padded ones make a difference to concussion. 
because the material isn't good enough to absorb the forces and decelerate the head enough to slow the brain inside the skull. Right. And remember, a concussion is the brain's movement inside the skull. So either the result of rotation and shear forces or linear, which again causes that shearing, or inertial, whatever it is, caused by like a tackle on the body or the direct to the head. In American football, it's interesting, the NFL have gone all in on helmets. And they really believe that they make a difference. They've even got data, which they present internally at our collision sport conference every year, but I've not yet seen published in a scientific journal. They've even got a new device now, which is called a guardian cap, which is the helmet with a padded thing around it. It makes them look like characters from the Mario Brothers computer game, you know, with the, <laughs> yes. big, the, the mushroom, the mushroom. The mushroom heads, yeah. <laughs> they look like, they look like, um, the quick helmets, step, quick step time trial cyclists yes, in the Tour de France. helmets. Yes. <laughs> yes, they do. They look really, really like weird, just like mm. silly looking. But they reckon that the use of those guardian caps in preseason has reduced their concussion in training quite considerably. So when we were in, um, when we were in uh, New York in May, we met with the NFL, and I was talking to the biomechanist who does a lot of their work, and. He said, why hasn't rugby looked into helmets a little bit more? And we said, well, because there's no evidence that headgear works. And we don't want helmets because helmets stop peripheral vision. And the way rugby's played, it's a bit different to... Plus, what's a, what does a scrum look like with with six guys with a helmet in the front row? Yeah. What does a ruck look like with five helmets yeah, diving? And there's a, the cultural part of that as well, which is... <laughs> so, yeah, rugby supporters <clears throat> are not going to support that. Okay, so helmets are off the table, but headgear is not. So he said, well, two things is, number one is the volume of the headgear is nowhere near big enough. They reckon that you need volume because the volume of a helmet and the headgear makes the scaffold in which you can dissipate forces to try and slow down the head. In other words, you can allow the helmet to absorb the force and the acceleration. And by the time it gets to the head, it's been reduced and the mm. skull doesn't move as much. Makes sense, right? Yeah. So he said, he said, yeah, if you, if you gave me two years to play around with headgear and rugby, I reckon I could make a helmet that reduced concussion risk. So, okay, cool. So we said, let's talk about that. So it's not inconceivable that in the next, I don't know, two to three years, materials come along. You know, like look at shoes. The Five years ago, no one would have been able to get away with what running shoes do now. And the difference was P-backs foam. So yeah. you get a new cushioning material that's just better at cushioning and elasticity than what existed before. So maybe, maybe something the, like that could be applied to helmets. Maybe yeah. the same yeah. sort of thing can be applied to helmets. Yeah. And then the other thing is the, the, the volume, you know. So maybe there's a way in the future. So it's not off the table. But when I see the AFL considering it, I don't know if they're considering helmets or head headgear. Mm. But at this point, no evidence. And in fact, there's also this concept of like risk um, compensation behavior, which is more colloquially known as the Superman effect, which you can appreciate means that when you have a helmet on and you feel protected, you might be more risky in your behaviors. And so whatever potential for reduction you get, you just offset by being a little bit more um, reckless in your play. Makes sense? Yeah. Same reason why people who wear sunscreen often get sunburned more often than those who don't because you feel protected. You're not really and so you end up getting the very thing you thought you were protected against. So, so it's an important one. And then the other thing that's interesting, and this was this was Deborah Latouf sent something in on a, on the same parliamentary hearing, is that the there's been a claim now made again by these 
these outside groups, you know, this is, and I'll get onto this. AFL should limit full contact practice to cut brain risk. And rugby's facing the same. There's a group called Progressive Rugby that's always saying we should reduce full contact training. But when the sport surveyed the professional players and the teams, it found that players do like very, very little full contact training in the week. And there's this, I don't know, you, you've probably heard, like back in the day, it used to be on a Monday, if you lost a game on a Saturday, you went out on a Monday and you, you just smashed one another. Mm. That's a culture that we don't see existing in the sport anymore. Every player and coach we've spoken to at the elite level now understands that you can't do that because you'll injure three players and then play the next game 20% mm. under strength. So when they say reduce full contact training, my first thought is from what to what? From 12 minutes a week to nine? Mm. Is, that, is that the difference maker? Because like sometimes it was that low. You know, sure. 60 minutes a week is semi-contact, shields and pads and so on. Like 10 to 15 minutes a week of full contact. So and some teams, non -issue, yeah. It might be a non-issue. We don't know for sure mm -hmm. because it's never been objectively measured. Right? We have to do some It's always contact. based on survey. Yeah. You and, have to do some purely that's, because that's what the game's about. And that's the key. Yeah. That's, the, that's the absolute key. Our data from women is suggesting to us, this is using the mouth guards, mm. is suggesting to us that in women, the concussion risk is so much, So these are the mouth guards higher. that have accelerometers exactly. in them to you measure, measure impact. Head yeah. acceleration. Mm. Is that in their training sessions, especially when they take the sport up later, they have far greater head acceleration exposure than when in men and in women who've taken the game up younger. And it's because the process of learning how to tackle is risky. Mm. And so if you run on the field for a match situation and you are not competent in the skill of tackling, your risk of injury goes up a lot. And so even when I see something like cut full contact practice, my thinking is like that might make things worse because what's the minimum dose you need? Like, and again, I always, I still default to running and cycling because those were my first two passions. If I'm a marathon runner and I never do a long run, I am not finishing a marathon at race pace. Mm. I will break down after 32K. It's the same concept in rugby is if I don't get the necessary exposure to contact when that's the match demand, am I preparing for it? And could that underpreparedness, unpreparedness be the thing that then causes the injury? So yeah. be these people from outside say, just cut this, cut that. First of all, it might not be a problem. And we don't know this for sure. That's why the mouth guards are so important in rugby, by the way, is because we can't quantify what, it, what true head exposure is per week in training. We've only got survey and subjective feedback. And in some teams, it's 30, 40 minutes. In some teams, it's 10. So let's call it, I think it is 27 minutes a week. Mm. If you cut that in half, do you injure a player because he's no longer accustomed? Or do you protect the player because he didn't need 27, he only needed? You see, it's an <laughs> unknown. So... Yeah, anyway, that, I guess the point is I read all these reports and it like, yeah, frustrates me a little bit that simple solutions are offered by people who don't appreciate complex potential outcomes. Yeah, you need to be, you actually need to be in the weeds to some extent. To, to some extent sport, you need yeah. to be. And, that, and again, look, you don't only want that person, but you just need better relationships between the person who's involved <laughs> and immersed and the person on the outside. Hmm. Some people, it's unfathomable to me why they don't cut contact. Well, it's only unfathomable to you because you don't actually know all the facts. Yeah, yeah. So, and I'm not rejecting cutting contact. I'm just saying you should know where you are 
and know how far you can go before you actually create the, the actual problem you're trying to solve with your intervention. And yeah. unless you do that systematically, which you can only <coughs> do from inside, you're not you're not solving this. You're making it worse. Yeah. Same thing with uh, potentially headgear. <coughs> and it's the same thing with return to play. 21 days out after a concussion, I guarantee you, you will miss 20% of concussions because players simply will not tell you that they have them. Yeah. And that's yeah. much worse than potential for early return, Yeah, I think. Let's move on to a, a new subject, and well, not a new subject, caught my eye, and a big thank yeah. you again to our, our patrons who have been very active on our patron channel. And Kate Walker has sent us a link to a study done on bone stress injuries with new shoes. And this is particularly referring to carbon fiber shoes. This is an obviously a, a, a study that needed to be done because there has been a lot of talk about the fact that these shoes put different stress on different joints of the body yeah. and different parts of your leg because of the f the fiber plate inside. And therefore, it was obvious that something was going to happen to the body as a result of these carbon fiber shoes. And here, here we have it. Yeah, I mean, we are, so Kate <clears throat> sent us, Kate's a physio um, in the UK who gave me all my core exercises as part ah. of my New Year's resolution. Which I noticed I'm, you looking quite ripped. I was yeah. just going to confess to not having <laughs> adhered to at all. Uh, and she sent this. It's actually not a study so much as a case series. And so what's happened here is that the journal Sports Medicine has published from some uh, clinicians a series of five cases. Now, case series are generally considered quite weak evidence because, and I'll read for you an example and you'll appreciate instantly why, is... Case two, a 17-year-old female middle distance runner was using carbon-plated shoes exclusively for interval sessions on the track. She had been using the shoes for six months over 100 kilometers. She experienced pain in the midfoot after a track session. The runner had a previous history of navicular bone stress injury in the same foot two years earlier and was treated conservatively. On evaluation, she was revealed to have suffered a stress fracture of the navicular bone. Now, that's not a study insofar as like we have no control over pretty much anything <laughs> until this young 17-year-old athlete walked into a clinician's office, right? Yeah. And this is an athlete with a history. So it could be no matter what shoe she was wearing, she would have gotten another one because a previous injury predicts a future injury. And it's the same for all five of these case studies. You'll read them and you'll go, but who says it's the shoe? That athlete could have been training badly in the six months leading up to it and the shoe was a coincidence. Yeah, they could have changed their color shoelaces, but you wouldn't have said it was because they changed from a red to a blue shoelace that they got injured. Mm. So, 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 so case series are important as like first steps to understanding whether a study should be done and then figuring out what that study should be. But by itself, they don't really prove anything. But the reason it's interesting, and I think it caught her eye and caught mine, is because we speak always about the performance benefits of the shoes. But the shoes... If the shoes are capable of changing your running performance by adding stiffness to the foot and increasing energy return at the ankle and the knee and, and through the ground, and as a consequence doing all those things on physiology, it would be naive to think that they're not doing things to the mechanics of the body. And one of those things could be bad for you. And that's what this case series suggests might be the case. I was going to say that's what the conclusion is that there is a possible Correct. link between this rather than a absolute link. Exactly, yeah. and then it makes me think back to the barefoot running stuff. When initially the barefoot running premise was sold all positively, mm. run injury free, run faster, run freer, <laughs> run like a Tarumara, Tarumara, Mexican yeah. Indian, Tarumara, yeah. 
<laughs> um, run like Kenyans, run like you were meant to, you know, Chris McDougall, born to run kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. And then slowly the report started to come in. Actually, I've got a stress fracture in my foot. Actually, I've got Achilles tendinosis or whatever the case was. And then eventually studies start coming out and saying, you know, unless you are really careful, eventually there was a lawsuit. Remember where Vibram got sued for causing injury. And so the point is that when you change anything, particularly a runner's interface with the ground, you, you probably have to assume that you've got to go back to... Well, it's not square zero, you know, if you're running 100k a week, even 40k a week, I think you've got to go back to 4k a week, but you've got to step back in order to move forward. And mm. I think that's, that's going to be interesting. Like, and these shoes are probably too expensive and too exclusive to the faster, better mechanical runners for there to be a, an epidemic of injuries like they were in the barefoot running case, because there, I think... Everyone from the low, the barrier to barrier to, low barrier to entry. Well, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and the people who were trying it were probably the ones who had more risk factors for injury in the first mm. instance mm. because they were beginners. They were less mechanically. Or they were more injured than most because they were looking for solutions. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And so this is not. So per hundred per hundred adopters of this tech, maybe. Five get injured per hundred adopters barefoot. I'd be surprised if it was less than fifty mm. get injured. So. It might yet take some time to see it, but I do think there's probably an injury risk. But that's true of anything. It's going to say there's an injury risk for absolutely everything. Yeah, you can. And it's often just training adaption which makes the biggest difference when it right. comes to these things. The and maybe that's the point here: is just yeah. to remind people, as a public yeah. service announcement, that <laughs> even if you change shoes from one cushioned version to another, yeah. you probably just want to hold for a week as opposed to progress. And it's the same thing when you when you go to a carbon shoe, you probably want to go back two steps before you make that third, fourth step forward. We've even taken it so far as to advise people in, in Runner's World uh, magazine to suggest that when you buy a new pair of shoes, even if it's the same model, to also ease back because shoes that you might have worn previously have worn in a certain way and therefore your body is having to adapt to a slightly newer model of that shoe. Um, and yeah, I think exactly. your body has to adapt no matter what it is. And it can adapt. We know that it can adapt. Right, and the the time that it takes ultimately determines the viability. And I remember thinking around the barefoot running, the reason this thing's never going to take off massively is because I think for most people it's four to six weeks. And so you're actually making a four to six week, and this is for a guy, a person who's running 50 to 70K a week, I think had to go back to almost beginner level and then progress mm. over six weeks, maybe eight weeks back to that point. So it's a two-month investment for quite a good runner. Mm. And no one's making that investment. No. It's very rare. So the only people that it was really going to succeed for were beginners and people who were completely injured and therefore at square zero in the first place mm. because they had to start slowly on a gradual increase. And so, mm. you know, I don't think carbon shoes need that much time. I think they probably need a couple of weeks. But, I mean, one of the case studies was someone who puts the shoe on and runs a race from it for the very first time and gets a stress fracture. Now, if that's the case, and they do, they do incidentally offer that. They say in the paper that there's a plausible basis for this um, because they say that the additional cushioning of that foam on top of the carbon plate, it is plausible that shoes with compressive foam midsole may allow, and this is going to get biomechanical, for increased plantar displacement of the navicular and cuneiform bones and modified forces to the hind foot. So, they reckon it's plausible that there might be an explanation for, and all five had a stress fracture in the same bone in the foot. It's an avicular bone. 
right. So, no, so in, in layman's it. terms, what are they saying about that? That there's a there's a particular action that those really for cushion shoes do on the foot. Yeah. So basically, they're saying here yeah, that the because the bones in the feet are obviously moving mm. through foot strike a little bit, not a lot, obviously you'd hope. Mm. But there's and and with the with the foam underneath the compressive foam and the energy return provided by that foam carbon plate combination. What they're saying is that there might be more movement of the navicular and cuneiform bones, which change the forces between those bones because they're all connected to one another. So it's kind of like an earth. Remember, there's an earthquake through your body every time you land. <laughs> and to what extent do the building, the bricks of the buildings have structural integrity? Mm. And they're saying that with a foundation of compressive foam, maybe those bricks aren't as inte- they don't have the same integrity as they would otherwise. Yeah. That's effectively it. Well, we'll so, keep, I'm, yeah, I'm, we'll see. Maybe going to be some more research into that aspect. I would imagine. But, but you know, I mean, you know, these research studies on mm. shoes are hard. Eh? Yeah, like you've been yeah. you've been in this business thirty years, and you, mm. we still don't have a conclusive study on motion yeah. control versus. No. So I doubt there's going to be. I mean, unless you've got the U.S. military to randomly assign half of the recruits one year to carbon shoes and half to cushioned, and then you train them exactly the same way mm. and you measure maybe then you mm. get something. So there are too many variables to discuss it. It's so The only conclusion that I've reached after having, as you said, working in this business for 20 years is that the body has an amazing ability to adapt. So when somebody says, what shoes should I buy? I said, well, pretty much you can buy any shoe. Preferably you want to go neutral, but your body will adapt if you train progressively and, mm. and don't do too much. And uh, the idea that you have to, the shoes will fix a problem unless you have a real serious bio- biomechanical issue i would suggest your body can adapt to pretty much anything neutral which but interestingly controversial enough, you could, i know you could no i don't think at all you could probably cut the last 30 seconds that you've just spoken and put it at the end of this podcast because you could say exactly those same words except to replace shoes with altitude and you will have summarized what we're about to discuss next oh dear. well let's get on to our main <laughs> subject then of the day Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Right, so I've been looking forward to doing this uh, discussion on altitude for uh, probably a couple of months or probably a couple of years more likely because it is something that I find extremely extremely interesting. And I'll tell you, before we get into sort of the, the, the mechanics of this and some of the st- things we're going to discuss here, I've experienced altitude in a very significant way. I used to live in Johannesburg, which is at about, what's it, 1,200 meters above sea level. And I now live Slightly in Slightly high, 15, 16. 15, 1600 meters. Mm. Sorry, I forget how high it yeah. was. So I lived in there. I lived there for 10 years and then I moved down to Cape Town, which is obviously at sea level. And in that time, I was riding a bike in Johannesburg and I was riding a bike here in Cape Town. One of the things that I discovered is that when I came down to Cape Town, I thought that I would lose a significant amount of um, of speed and fitness as a result of moving away from the altitude situation. There's no doubt that I, when I lived in Johannesburg and came down to Cape Town, being able to run and cycle here was easier. But what I discovered is that when I was training at altitude, when I was training at, sorry, at sea level, I was able to put out 
much more in terms of effort levels. So I was actually able to train more significantly at lower altitudes because there was more muscle recruitment, there was more oxygen to use, et cetera, et cetera. This is why it became such an important thing because we often talk about in this podcast that we challenge what is the norm. And we look at all the top cyclists around the world. We look at runners around the world. And ever since the 1970s, 1980s, people have been talking about altitude training as being the sort of elixir of success. You mm. go to our altitude and you suddenly are going to be there. So let's let's start let's start with the basics. What are the basics around altitude training? What is the theory behind it and why is it supposed to work? Yeah, so good place to start, but I'll say my experience, I grew up in Johannesburg, was born and lived there till I was 17 and then came to Cape Town. Mm. And I can't say I noticed a benefit when I came down. But I certainly, within two years, and I go back, I'd lost all my altitude. And now, I mean, like even I said last week's podcast, I went to Denver. The first staircase I walked up, I was gassed. I thought, oh my God, it's going to be a long six weeks of cycling here in Boulder. <laughs> so I'm now distinctly sea level. But the point you were making about the training is is maybe one of the most interesting things because where we'll end up with is this whole concept of like cost and benefit you know there's a benefit but is it offset by the cost and that's why mm. different models of live high train low and so on have evolved so that's what we're going to discuss between the start and the end so your question was what what are the basics around altitude? yeah what are the well, basics well nobody would dispute i suppose that getting oxygen from the air via the lungs into the blood and onto the muscles is an essential part of exercise performance for a few reasons one is it determines vo2 max which is your ceiling and therefore, it determines what percentage of your VO2 max you're exercising at when you're running a 5, a 10K, a marathon, whatever it is, or cycling up a 45-minute climb like the Tourmalet volleying was last weekend. And so the moment you take away that oxygen, performance will be compromised because if your VO2 max is normally 75 and it's now 68, the ceiling's lower, but to ride at 300 watts requires the same oxygen. And so now all of a sudden I'm at 92% where I used to be at 82%. And I can't do 92% for 30 minutes. I can only do it for 18 minutes. So therefore I'm failing 12 minutes early. Makes sense. Yeah. So the reason all that happens is because the partial pressure is lower as we go up in altitude. And so there is, people will often write it as less oxygen available. The, it's not like the percentage of oxygen in the air drops. That's always 21%. It's just that the pressure of the air is lower. And so to get that oxygen from the air into the blood, that depends on a pressure gradient and that's dropped. And so yeah. you can't fill the alveoli and therefore the blood as much with oxygen. So you get desaturation. The PO2 in the air drops, therefore the PO2 in the lungs and the blood drops. And that drop in PO2 is hypoxia, low oxygen, as opposed to hyper high oxygen and that hypoxia is what then drives all the adaptations to altitude but also the initial let's call it physiological panic i've uh, my breathing rate is high and i you know i noticed this almost immediately within an hour like as i say walking through the airport in denver i was breathing more deeply couldn't walk and have a conversation with someone without having to stop and take a few deep breaths and pause my sentences every minute or two you also start questioning yourself whether no, there's something, wrong with, you. there's something yeah. wrong with me. I was walking with Mara Yamauchi to dinner in that conference in Denver. And I said, Mara, I'm, I'm, so, I'm sorry I'm not talkative. I just actually can't breathe. 
Amazing. Huh? <laughs> it's crazy. And so your ventilation. So that's my body. It's like my body's realized there's less oxygen. So what does it do? It says, well, breathe more. We'll get more in that way. You know, the quality might not be so good, but we can make up for it with quantity. Heart rate goes up. Same mm. reason is because there's less oxygen available at the tissues. And so the heart rate goes up because that's another way to get more oxygen there. You know, it's like, okay, it's, it's like think of your your blood is the, your, your circulatory system is the road network of a city and the red blood cells are the taxis. Those taxis normally carry three people each. Now they're carrying two. Okay, what's the solution? More taxis and more blood, more, more traffic. <laughs> right. And so that's what your body's trying to do with heart rates and breathing. So that, those are some of the initial things that happen. And then over time, you adapt. And that's what endurance, not endurance, that's what altitude training is trying to achieve. So the oxygen, the red blood cells are the oxygen carrying part of the blood. They're, they're the bits that carry the blood. Correct. That's the hemoglobin. So the hemoglobin sits on those red blood yeah. cells and that's the taxi. Right. Exactly. And that takes yeah. it to, so the, the higher concentration of red blood cells you have, therefore the more oxygen you have in your body to utilize, essentially. Yeah, the, it's, it's about hemoglobin mass. And so when you read these studies of, of altitude training, and there are other things actually which we will get into which are quite important it's not just blood that altitude is helping but that's the main thing is i'm i want to go to altitude and come back to sea level with more red blood cells i want my oxygen carrying capacity to have improved so hemoglobin mass goes up hematocrit goes up so that's the percentage of your blood volume that is made up of cells and so that's all part of the the deal you're making is you're going there for that benefit which is the same benefit obviously as using epo as a doping product except in this instance you'd go to altitude to earn it which brings us to the mechanism and it's really fascinating actually is that the moment the pressure of oxygen is lower and it's sensed by the body what happens is there's this there's this molecule called uh, it's a signal molecule called hypoxia inducible factor <laughs> so hypoxia low oxygen inducible in other words induced by low oxygen factor and it's really it, that thing exists in all our cells all the time but every five minutes it basically dies and is replaced it's got a very short what they call half-life oh, wow. fascinating is when you go to oxygen that thing's half-life goes to 30 minutes so i no, don't ask me how wow. <laughs> but it, it, it suddenly its lifespan increases <laughs> and because its lifespan increases it's got more time to do its thing and its thing is switching on the transcription of genes. And that's what causes the changes. And one of the things that it in switches on is the synthesis of EPO in the kidneys. Right. Makes sense? EPO is the making it, of red blood cells. Erythropoietin. Erythropoietin is the, is the right. protein that helps make red blood cells. Yes, so it's, right. a, it's another signaling yeah. molecule. So it's, everybody knows what EPO is yeah. anyway. <laughs> so, so, so when you go to altitude, your hypoxia-inducible factum goes up this then increases the erythropoietin levels, which then drives the formation of red blood cells. So it's a signal to a signal to a consequence. Mm. And now you get increased hemoglobin mass. And it's all done by that hypoxia-inducible factor, which is fascinating. And as an aside, and literally one sentence to measure this, I reckon if you could, if you could manipulate these, because HIF, this hypoxia-inducible factor, is one of dozens, if not hundreds, of these signaling molecules. That's where... If someone was to say, what a dope is doing that's undetectable, I reckon it's there. Mm -hmm. But that's that's just an aside. Because if you could switch that stuff on, 
you get massive benefits. What in other words, switch on the thing that's stimulating the, the, signals. the, the signals. Yeah, yeah. it's yeah. like going through the house and flicking on light switches and yeah. making lights come on and off when you want them to and when you don't, which is a very complex thing to do. But that's what altitude does, is it flicks on the light switch for hypoxia inducible factor. And then everything else follows as a consequence. The main one, the, main, the most well-known one being the formation of red blood cells via EPO production. So, of course, I've got a million questions, but I'll start with one at a time. The first question is, what is the ideal altitude? In other words, if I go into the top of Toa Mountain, which is at 900 meters, am I going to see a significant difference there? Or is there a minimum height of which you should be at to get altitudes? So, and is there also a maximum height where, you, where the benefits start decreasing? Uh, yeah, so that's all really good questions. And some of them will be answered progressively as we go into more detail. There's a study by, uh, I think it's John Paul Verline. Let me just make sure I get the name right so I don't do him a disservice. But the surname's definitely Verline. Um, called John Peter, sorry, John Peter Verline. Linear decrease in VO2 max and performance with increasing altitude in endurance athletes. Okay, so the first answer to your question is, as you go up, you get worse. <laughs> it's not like there's a staircase where you go up, and you're fine, 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 and now you get worse. Right. Right. So what they did in this study was they had a bunch of endurance athletes do VO2 max and time to exhaustion tests at 300 meters, 800 meters, 1300 meters, 1800 meters, 2300, and 28. So a lot of them. <laughs> What's that? That's six different altitudes. And they worked out that there was roughly a 6.3% reduction in VO2 max per 1000 meters. So if I go to 2,000 meters, I can expect my VO2 max to drop by 12.5%. It's quite linear, isn't it? And it, and it, was, it was pretty linear. So for instance, it goes from 66 at 300 meters, which we'll call close enough sea level, to 55 at 2,800. So that's a drop of 11 on 66. So that's 17% by the time you get to 2,800. Time to exhaustion at the same intensity as at sea level, so it's the same power output or running speed, I think it was power output in this instance, uh, decreased by 14.5% per 1,000 meters altitude. So at 1,000, you'd be 14% worse. At 2,000, 29% worse. This is, this is first exposure. Another study that I found went to 4,300, 70% reduction in time to exhaustion. Wow. And I think you can't think of it as being as significant that's as that. mad. And I, this is the only thing that I consoled myself with in Boulder because I went riding on the first day and I said, I'm going to do a flat ride because I knew from my. And where are you at Boulder? About 2,000 meters? 1,600. So same as Janice. Yeah. And then pretty soon out of getting out of there, you can be at 1,800. And if you go west, you go up. And then within 20K, you can be at 3,000. You go to a town called Ward along left-hand canyon and you can go up Sunshine Canyon and you end up at like 2,800 pretty quickly within an hour and a half. Well, it means I slowly cycle, <laughs> let me say two hours. Um, so yeah, so, so these, these, studies, these studies show like massive effects. I wanted to find and quote you the other, the other one which I highlighted. It's a insane difference, like 76% longer time, but that was at like 4,300 meters. So that's a big, that's a big altitude. I mean, now sure. you're talking. Now you're talking base camp on Kelly, just about right. Yeah. So that's a significant. Um, that's a significant change. It also shows you significantly when we talk about the Tour de France, like when they say that this climb was at altitude. There's a difference between saying a climb got to that altitude versus a climb that started at a high altitude already. Yes. So, so once you at in in the Alps and you're starting at 
1,600 meters above sea level and climbing to 3,000, you're really putting the body under strain. And as mm. you say, significantly, at the Tour de France level, they are climbing to close to 3,000 meters on some of those big stages. And that, I mean, as you say, those, those differences in performance are enormous. Yeah, and I will say, like, when you... Even in Boulder, like starting at 1600 and then as I rode up and up and up and I got to above 2800, okay, it's hard to discern by that stage, like the effect of fatigue on, <laughs> on how I felt mm. compared to, but I'd noticed it acutely changing in the course of a ride and that's over a 1200 meter gain. But well, you were saying your legs weren't tired, but your body yeah, was unable was to produce power. I just power. couldn't breathe. And my respiratory muscles felt like they were fatigued and I mm. could not, I could not breathe. It's like breathing through a straw. Mm. It's as if you pinched my nostrils closed and told me to breathe through like a pursed lips. Just couldn't couldn't get it in fast enough. You it know? feels like a sort of a, a straw that's closed off when you're sucking it up, a milkshake. Like mm. you can only pull it a little bit through, <laughs> Suff- but it's stuck at the bottom and yeah. you're not getting enough liquid through. It yeah. feels like yeah. suffocation. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So, okay, so that's that's the effect of acute altitude exposure. Mm. Roughly, and this has been shown in a couple of other studies, 6 to 8% reduction per 1,000 meters. So by the time you get to Mexico City at 2,000, you're talking, let's call it 14% impairment or 12 mm. to 14%. Altitude training is a little bit different because you are going to get some adaptations. And so when you look at the literature there, and I wanted to read to you the way that it was classified, uh, if I could find that at some point, there's a few studies that I'm going to refer to a few times. Here. Yeah, I know Ross has done a lot um, of invest of, of research into this so, topic today. So the continuum of altitude. This is from a paper that was. There's two good reviews on this. One of them is from 2009 by Saunders, Pine, and Gore. Gore being one of the scientists who helped develop the biological passport, because that's obviously confounded by altitude. Maybe we'll get to that. And then the second paper is uh, first authored by Inigo Mujica and then Avish Sharma and Trent Stellingworth. And so these two, and, and that second paper was 2021. And it's interesting to track the evolution of these, sorry, 2019, the evolution of these arguments over that decade. But in this particular paper, they say sea levels 0 to 500, low altitudes 500 to 2000. So when we talk about altitude training, 2000 is still considered to be lowish. Mm. <laughs> Moderate is 2000 to 3000, high is three to five and a half, and then extreme altitude is five and a half. So now we're talking Kilimanjaro, um, Aconcagua, Everest eventually, right? Okay. So that's that's a different conversation. So Nobody's that, going there to train. So, there, so, so that is in terms of training advantages. So in other words, train. if you're below 2000 meters, you'll get some adaption, but not significant. So yes. what they're then suggesting is anything between two and 3,000 is probably the, the magic Yeah, you know, probably spot. 1,800 to 2,500. You right. see, because the problem with it is, and we're preempting this now, part preempting, part going back to what you were saying earlier, is the higher up, the go, higher up you go, like the more negative the altitude effect is on performance. And it just at some point compromises training quality so much that even that, hemoglobin benefit can't make up for the loss of training productivity yeah because especially in athletes who need to do higher intensity training they cannot sustain the necessary intensity and that's why when you come down from altitude especially in the early days of doing altitude studies they used to say but there's no benefit here they've got more hemoglobin but they can't 
perform Quite, faster. They haven't got the muscles to use it. And it's because when they did their 10 by 400s or their 300 meter repeats, so even the mile repeats, they run them like 9, 10% slower. There's actually quoted statistics on these. So for instance, in that Majika paper, there's a specific reference where, and I'll, I, I did want to read this to you, is the lower absolute training intensity at altitude may have implications for performance at sea level. Now remember what happens is your VO2 max comes down, so at any running speed or power output, you're now functioning at a higher percent, which is unsustainable. So you have to slow down in order to finish a session, right? So a 5K time trial or a 400 meter track repeat session has to be done slower or it's not possible. So mm. for example, um, runners showed a 9% decrease in running speed during interval training at 2,500 meters and then showed a significant impairment in 5,000 performance following altitude training. Uh, here's another one. At 2,500 running speed at equivalent relative intensity, lactate threshold, was reduced by 13%. So now I'm doing my sea level lactate threshold session and I'm running a speed 13% faster than when I do it at altitude. So even though I'm getting a cardiovascular stimulus that's unique at altitude, I'm not getting the neurological and the muscular and the metabolic and the biochemical benefits. And so I've traded one benefit off against another disadvantage. Makes sense, right? In other words, what, what you're saying is if you don't have, an, I'm trying to figure out a good analogy, but it's like having a, a, a massive carburetor on a tiny engine in that respect, where you might have this big engine, uh, they might yes, have this the, big carburetor with lots of fuel in it, the, but actually the, it's a one liter engine that can't yeah. push the, out. The, the requirement for your analogy to work is that the carburetor and the engine are adaptable. <laughs> yes. And so you're stressing the engine stressing the engine but the carburetor is like getting neglected yeah, yeah so one of them one of them's actually declining while the other one's going up so your runner mm -hmm. will return from altitude potentially with two three four five percent more hemoglobin but that they can't unlock what that means for performance because they've they've lost elsewhere because performance is not simply a function of how much hemoglobin you have there are yeah. there's more to it than that there's also the metabolic can you supply you know the enzymes for instance the mitochondria and so on and that's where incidentally we spoke about that hypoxia inducible factor let me use this opportunity to talk about that the most common thing that that hypoxia inducible factor does is it drives epo production and hemoglobin that's what everyone knows about mm. but it does a bunch of other stuff you know it changes the expression of genes that drive mitochondrial differences so, you know, the same, you know, the mitochondria that contain all the enzymes that are responsible for carbohydrates and fat metabolism. And so what happens, for instance, is that you get, um, and there's a really useful table in the paper by uh, Saunders et al. that explains all these different adaptations, is that there are, you, you increase the glycolytic enzyme capacity. So enzymes like phosphofructokinase, lactate dehydrogenase, they go up at altitude. Whereas some of the other enzymes that are responsible for fat oxidation go down initially and then correct after some time. So there's a whole bunch of other stuff that's happening. It's not all about the blood, I guess, is the point that I'm trying to make, if that makes sense. Is, is that the right time to be, you, you touched on it right at the start about tra training low and sleeping high. 
Um, I've heard of, I mean, this was a big craze in the in the triathlon world where people were literally tr- sleeping in high altitude tents at low altitudes. So they were training at low altitudes, but sleeping at, so they were getting the benefit of the increased blood cell uh, production mm-hmm. when they were sleeping at night, but they were able to train using the all the fuel they had. Is that a still a something that is, you don't hear about it so much anymore, but it sounds like that was the perfect solution to getting the best of both worlds. Yeah, and that was it was it was the solution to that exact problem because it was recognized that we just can't train at the same intensity when we wanted to. And you see that's less of a problem. It's not entirely not a problem. It's less of a problem when your only sessions are going to be your long base sessions, 12 miles or 18k's at 5 minutes a k for a 3 minute a k marathon runner. No problem. Mm. Doesn't matter if that section if that session is a little bit harder at altitude than at sea level because it's so far below any mm. you know you're doing it for different purposes it's and you're, a, it's aerobic for them anyway. And you yeah exactly it's below that threshold as it were and that's why I think threshold and above are the ones that are compromised. So it's your track sessions and mm. your quality stuff. And so then this, the guys, people said all right well then we can do both because what we'll do is we'll get. 21 hours a day, 22 hours a day at high altitude so that we get that stimulus. But when we want to do our harder sessions, we'll come down. So for instance, some coaches, and this is described, is middle distance runners lived at 1800, did all their low to moderate intensity running at 1700 to 2200. So high altitude sort of training. But all high intensity sessions were done at an altitude of 900 meters so that they could maintain their 800 and 1500 pace in order to keep race fitness makes sense right yep and then you get a two percent improvement in performance after that altitude camp uh the other thing that their friends would do is you do 10 400s but you'd come down in altitude or you have to change the session to give you more rest so that you can keep the speed but something has to give Mm. and the the live high train low was that give now it's not completely gone out of fashion there's a there's a hotel in Spain that is an altitude hotel. And so they've, they've kept the inside of that hotel to lower pressures to simulate altitude. But the moment you walk out the front door, you're at sea level. Well, oh, wow. low in the altitude. I believe it's owned by the <laughs> I think, maybe I shouldn't because I could be wrong. Uh, Vinokurov <clears throat> and another russian kazakhstani cyclist or something there was some deal where they they paid one another there was a, the money money was exchanged to determine a race result and it's that guy i forget what his name was i know the story yes <coughs> you know the story, yeah, I know yeah. the story I'm and i think he's involved in that hotel and i think mm. Fanapul goes there regularly that's his that's, his, that's where he goes mm. but the, the classic model was live high and train high now i don't know enough about places like um tenerife where the cyclists are going uh, you know, because every guy now, Remco Evenepoel's just come down from a block. He came down, he won San Sebastian, now he's in Glasgow. Mm. Um, Lavinia is another one where I know that the UAE guys go. I'm not sure where Roglic is right now preparing for the Vuelta, mm. but it's at altitude. Same thing, Venegor would have gone to altitude. And when you listen to when you listen to people trying to explain the remarkable performances we've seen, one of the things I've heard them say is that the cyclists have perfected altitude. They spend... They spend 25 to 35 weeks a year now at altitude because they're basically doing two, three, four-week blocks of altitude, coming down, racing for three or four weeks, back to altitude for a block, coming down, racing for a few weeks. So it's definitely still being done. I just couldn't tell you what they're training at versus sleeping at. 
So, I mean, there's, there is so much to get. I'm going to talk about how some of the studies are suggesting that the more elite the athlete, the less of a benefit that is. What do we know about how long this effect lasts? In other words, well, maybe we should start off by saying, how long does it take to adapt? And is that adaptation continu- continually growing the longer you yeah. stay at altitude? And how long does it stick with you afterwards? Because there's no point in getting altitude when you lose that altitude of effect maybe three days later. Yeah, so the, th- the, the, the effects begin to plateau at like three to four weeks. And so most athletes will do 21 to 30 day training camps at altitude. But where this gets interesting is that if you are a regular altitude visitor, you can get the same adaptation within a couple of weeks each time. So there was one study that was done in swimmers where each individual trip didn't elevate the hemoglobin. But when you looked at three individual altitude camps of two weeks, they were 5% better at the end than at the start. Make sense? Yes. So one week block, sorry, two week block number one, hemoglobin goes up very slightly, but not majorly. Couple of months later, second block, very slight, but not major. Third block, very slight, but not major. But from A to D, big increase. From A to B, B to C, C to D, small increase. So cumulative effects do occur. And and that's led to this theory that there's almost like a hypoxic memory Mm -hmm. where the athlete, not the athlete, but the athlete's physiology almost remembers the altitude exposure so that the second, the third, the fourth exposure cause the adaptations to happen a bit faster. Now, if that's the case, what it means is that you can get away with shorter camps if you go regularly. But the model, the classic model used to be, you know, go for two to three weeks, come down, spend a couple of weeks at sea level, do your competitions, and then get back up as soon as you could. And so that's how it was generally done. There's some data, for instance, they show that about half the gain at altitude is lost after three weeks. So what took you three weeks to gain, you lose in about half that time. So you lose half of in the same time after. Make sense? Yeah. Um, but if you go back again for your next exposure, you probably regain it slightly faster as well, according to some of the evidence. So, yeah, it's uh, it's it's and, and, and it's this is where I think it gets really interesting is the, when the. When the early studies were done, one of the first things they noticed is that some people would go up and then come back looking identical to how they left. Performance was the same. Hemoglobin was the same. EPO was the same. Nothing had changed in these athletes. And so they immediately started to classify, I think understandably, people as responders versus non-responders. You've <coughs> no doubt heard that term. We've mm. spoken about it in the context of shoes. We've spoken about it in the context of drugs. Even even headache tablets have responders mm. and non-responders. And so it was thought that that might be the same thing with altitude. Where it's interesting is that um, <laughs> scientists are now suggesting, and this is, includes Majika, and again, I'll read it, specifically to you because I think it's interesting. Um, We would contend that there is no such thing as a non-responding athlete to altitude training camps. Instead, non-responder athletes are probably a product of one-off camps and inadequate planning, periodization, programming, and monitoring of altitude training. So this is where it gets extremely complex. That's why your earlier summary of the shoes is appropriate to altitude because it's so individualized. And in fact, just recently, relatively recently anyway, um, a review came out in the Scandinavian Journal of Sports Science and Medicine by a group from Finland where they basically collected uh, a whole bunch of studies and 
they included 59 elite endurance athletes. So this is elites, important point, because definitely elites respond differently to non-elites who had gone to altitude training camps and 15 of those had done at least two, if not three. So in total, they had 82 camp exposures across these 59 athletes. And what they found was that in 56% of them, the hemoglobin mass of these athletes had gone up. So that's, that's only half, right? If the altitude camp was above 2000, then it was 65. So coming back to your earlier point, it pro- you probably need altitude above 2000 to be more confident of seeing hemoglobin. Move the needle. Move the needle. But where this was interesting is that of the 15 athletes who participated in altitude camps at least twice, so now this is the same person going more than one time, 27 were always positive responders with more hemoglobin. 13 were always negative responders. So that's not very common. And 60 had one positive and one negative when they went up, or had both positive and negative. So they were bang, bang in the middle. Well, well, well one time the they were good, and one time they were bad. So on average, they got <laughs> yeah. no benefit. Yeah. But that's not a good way to think about managing athletes. What you'd rather want to say is, what was it about this athlete in the 2021 altitude camp that allowed them to respond well, whereas in 2022, they didn't respond? Because if, if you could figure that out, and make sure they're always positive, then you're winning every time you go. Make sense? Yeah. So now the question is, well, what is it? Well, it's the altitude you go to. It's gotta be more than 2000 meters probably, at least for the live part. Plus then maybe you gotta do your harder training low. There's a higher risk of getting sick at altitude because altitude is a stress. And in fact, I've seen studies showing glutamine levels drop, sympathetic nervous system response goes up. Sleep quality is worse at altitude. Altitude tends to also have drier air, so that causes airway inflammation and increased risk of upper respiratory tract infections and inflamed airways. So it's not necessarily a given that you will get the benefits when there are also these threats to mm-hmm. training. Sometimes going to altitude in, involves a change in the weather. You know, I, sp- I spoke jokingly, I went from 15 degrees sea level to 1,600, 2,000 meters at 35 degrees Celsius. I was, I was dying on both fronts. Like sure. I was hot and, and thin air. <laughs> so, so if you don't, like, and that's not always an issue, obviously, if you move within the same season, same hemisphere, it's not a major problem. But the point I'm trying to make is, there's lots that goes into making sure an athlete gets the benefits of altitude training. What do they do when they're there? Now, I went to a conference in Colorado Springs many years back. It's like five or six years ago. And the coach just spoke and said, if you, if you take an athlete, group of athletes for the first time to altitude, and you expose them to regular interval training and higher intensity work, and they're not fit coming in, not healthy coming in, they will go home worse than when they got there because it's just too hard. And so mm. the training has to be managed really. It was the adaptations not happening at, a, at the speed fact, of which they needed to. You get maladaptation. You actually <clears throat> yeah. get overtrained and overreached because of the altitude and you end up coming worse. And so you coming back worse than you, than you were. So the key point is that when, if you go to altitude camp in your, in your beginning phases of a training cycle, where your focus is on general preparation and training intensity is not critical, then you can just do relatively high volumes at low intensities and you can get all the blood benefits. But if you're going at a stage (coughs) later in the year where you need higher intensity training, then you've got to be very careful. For instance, the, the ferritin levels of athletes 
coaches and scientists think really matters. If you go to altitude without high initial iron levels, you don't get the hemoglobin benefits and therefore the performance benefits. So there's so many moving parts that you sure. have to think about in order to make the most of altitude. It's not a simple case of go up, spend three weeks and you'll come down and you'll be flying. Yeah. Mm. yeah. That's, that's really the point. And I mean, I recently read an article in Outside Magazine where they were talking about a piece written about the skeptics' view to altitude training and saying the one factor which is worth keeping in mind, and I think probably quite a significant one, is that when athletes go to altitude, they generally go there on a training camp. So they are focused on their training. They're, they've got a plan. They've eating and sleeping, and that's all they're doing. So inevitably some of the results are skewed by the fact that there is a focused attention to training while yes. they're there, as opposed to somebody who might go and train at, not only people are gonna to go to a training camp at coastal level because there's a belief you're not gonna get the same benefit. Right. So there's this kind of, just the idea of focused training that actually yeah, yeah, allows yeah. for an improvement, which and might not be a direct result of the altitude. And it's interesting, because like, I, I can't remember when it was, but it was way before I ever met you and our orbits crossed, because I think I was, I think I was probably an undergraduate student, hadn't even gone into sports science, and Tim Noakes used to write for your magazine. Mm. I don't know whether you were the editor then or how you were involved, but there was an article I remember he wrote called Altitude or Attitude, and he was basically making that case, is that there was no evidence from good studies that that was the altitude per se, as opposed to the fact that you were going to a new place with minimal distraction, getting more sports science, more medicine, more recovery, because of the fewer distractions and better training volumes and qualities. And I remember a coach that I knew back at the time was most upset because he at, the, at that time had been lobbying to try and build an altitude training facility in Lesotho here in Southern Africa where you could do live high, train low. You could live at like 3,000 meters and then you could drive down 90 minutes and you'd be at like 1,200 meters at the bottom of the pass. Yeah, in fact, pass, yeah. In fact, SA Rowing used that. <coughs> mm. South African Rowing Team, Roger Barrow, who was their guy, they used to go there all the time and they'd, they'd do mountain bike sessions up at super high altitude, low intensity stuff, and then for the rowing sessions, they'd come down and then they'd sleep at the high altitude. Anyway, so he wrote that and I, I remember reading that like in, in your magazine and then mm. here's a similarly worded more academically maybe though from one of those papers we cannot discount potential placebo effects of altitude training that is a favorable outcome occurs because athletes believe in the benefits of training at altitude and it may also be that altitude training provides a high quality camp because of the increased focus on training mm. more time spent recovering between sessions consistently having people to train with for all sessions novelty of the venue additional sports science support and being away from the distractions of home a limitation of all studies has been that the control group has been aware that they were not at altitude and that was written in 2009 then there is a a guy from i think scandinavia i'm not sure he's, he's scandinavian Carsten lundby danish i think who's become Maybe not quite a skeptic, but he certainly is one of the guys who's written articles on this. This is from 2012. Does altitude training, in quotation marks, I'm not sure why, is to do the whole fire the laser quotation marks mm. thing. Does altitude training increase performance in elite athletes? And he says in this paper, the general practice is widely accepted. Given that few studies have utilized appropriate controls, there should be more skepticism concerning the effects of altitude training methodologies. In this review, we aim to point out weaknesses in theories and methods and so on. Then 2016, he writes another paper. Does altitude training increase exercise performance in elite athletes? 
What is the topic of this review? The aim is to evaluate the effectiveness of altitude training strategies. Based on the literature, the foundation to recommend altitude training to athletes is weak. Athletes may use one of the various altitude training strategies to improve exercise performance. So typically vague and science, but basically pointing out all the holes, not particularly productive. To some extent, he's an outlier because that's not generally the consensus, is it? Among the scientists, it is because I think scientists come at this and say, like, you know, I'm not interested in opinions and anecdotes and even case studies, case examples. I don't care that, you know, 92% of the world's marathons have been won by people who've prepared at altitude in the last 20 years <laughs> or that, or that uh, seven out of the last 12 grand tours have been won by people from one or two altitude camps mm-hmm. around the world. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like they don't, to them, that's not data. That's just stories. And mm-hmm. they want to say, let's have a controlled study. So it's not entirely unique in the scientific world to have that. And again, I don't, I don't think Lindby is a skeptic. Um, although the use of the quotation marks around altitude training is weird, but maybe, maybe he is. I don't know. Maybe he's just trying to dismiss it all. Mm, but, but, but yeah, I, I, I think they're just saying that there's never been a well-controlled study. And so he's got a study, in fact, um, that was published in 2018 called, it's got a long title, so bear with me. Hyperbaric live high, train low does not improve aerobic performance more than live low, train low in cross-country skiers. So what they did in this study is they took elite Norwegian cross-country skiers, not elite, but well-trained, very good. Problem is they were 20 years old, so young, and this would be among their first ever time at altitude. Now that's an important point because of what I mentioned earlier is that with more and more exposure to altitude, you might start to see more more and more benefit because of that what they call hypoxic memory. And what they did was they split them into two groups. The one group goes and lives high, which is at 2,200 meters for 26 days. And the other group lives low, 1,000 meters, for the same period. But then for training sessions, they bring them all together. And they train partly at like low altitudes, 500 to 800 meters, um, partly below 500 meters, and partly at 800 to 1,100. So it's moderate altitude training. Mm-hmm. And by the end of it, both groups improve exactly the same. So the live high part didn't do anything didn't that do any, the other yeah. group didn't get. And then the final point just on that is that it has been documented so what they're saying is that you should then, if you're going to get the benefit of any kind here, you need to actually train high. That might be the it, it, that might be the significant <clears throat> part of this. And that's one thing. Reading that paper, I thought you know, it might be that these athletes a were not all elite to begin with, mm. and so the training stimulus caused because they did find, for instance, that both groups improved hemoglobin, both groups hematocrit goes up, both groups saw reticulocyte level changes. So. All the blood changes you'd normally expect with altitude, they saw. And so that moderate band of training where they did some training from 800 to 1,100 meters might be enough all by itself and that living higher didn't help. Mm-hmm. So you could do two things. You can make them live even higher, 2,600 meters, or you've got to let them do more training at 2,400, 2,500 meters, but lower intensity stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Again, coming back to what we spoke about earlier. And then a final relevant piece here is that it's been described is that in some studies, total training volume is typically 30 to 35% higher during a two-week altitude camp than in the two weeks before and after the camp. 
The increase in training volume while at altitude is mainly achieved through increased frequency of long, low-intensity training sessions despite a reduction in strength training. So when athletes go to altitude, it is true that they will tend to train more. And anyone who follows elite cyclists on Strava will see that. Like when mm-hmm. Timon Ironsman was up at altitude uh, during the Tour de France, actually, he was doing it on a camp because he'd ridden the Giro and I guess he's going to do the Vuelta. Same thing when Evanapool's there. The guys are doing 160 five-hour, six-hour rides basically every single day for a week and a half. Mm. They don't do that when they're not at altitude. So the altitude camp represents two things. One is exposure to altitude and two is exposure to much more training. And that makes it harder to understand whether it's the altitude that makes a difference. Does mm. that make sense yeah, from a scientific sense, yeah. perspective? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, it, is a, it, is a, it is a human factor there. Mm. I mean, it, it sounds like having listened to your d- d- discussions around the research that, that's been into this, that there is more research needed in this space. And But it's one of those spaces where you think there'd be loads of research into the space where you can make an absolute decision. But it seems that there are so many variables um, outside of the fact that it's just whether you go to a training camp or not. There is also, as you talk about responders and non-responders, you obviously get different. I mean, mm. do we know if men and women get better? No. We don't. I've never seen research on seen that. that. I haven't seen you anything know? on that. Yeah. Um, Older or younger, for instance, does that make any difference? You know, yeah, there's all yeah. sorts of things that I find quite fascinating. Exactly. Does like level you? of level of fitness. Yeah. Um, yeah. If you read the this, the the Majika Stillingworth paper, it's very clear they believe strongly i mean that statement about we don't believe there is such a thing as a non-responder to altitude i'm also believing what i on this podcast in the in the past we've called like the darwinian effect is like athletes will figure out if it works or not and because altitude training is quite an inconvenience you listen to um who was it who won a stage and said how was it Jorgensen who I think came second? Well, in the end, he didn't even get second. He got caught on the Puy de Dome in the tour. And then afterwards, he was talking about how like hard the last few months have been. He's been living like a monk, almost in isolation in these altitude-like retreats. If these athletes could get the same benefit from sea level, they would have by now. So yet they're not doing that. Now, that could just be an acquired behavior culturally handed down from one generation to the next. You must go to altitude. You must go to altitude. No one's even explored no. the possibility that you could you could helicopter Evanapool and Vinegar and Pogacar to a sea level camp without telling them. <laughs> and yeah. they'd come back just as good as they would have been without a, you know, <laughs> we don't tell them though, because the placebo effect is definitely true. And so no one, no one really knows that. But I would... If it was me and you said, here's a guy with aspirations of winning a Grand Tour, a city marathon, an Olympic endurance gold medal, I would be planning an altitude training session in. But yeah. I'd be I'd be really, really smart. Like, when do you go to altitude? How often a season? And when in relation to the competition and the macro cycle? Because mm. you, if you, you've got to think about altitude as just one of half a dozen stress factors. And if you apply that stress factor at the wrong time, then it becomes... A maladaptive force. You'll mm. make the athlete worse than they would have been otherwise, right? And, and my final question, I mean, it's it's the, the it's probably the, the the best one is that is the fact that, that we don't know. Do we know how long the adaptation lasts? In other words, if somebody trains at a training camp, you know, for three weeks now, and they're going to be doing a grand tour in two weeks, will that benefit still sit with them in two weeks' time? Yes. And how is there? Obviously, there must be a tail off of some kind. 
Yeah, so this this is even less well known in the literature than than the, if whether or not there's a benefit. And a number of articles have been written about it. And very early on, it was asked like, what's the window of opportunity to get best performance? And I don't know how this stuff happens. Like it's the same actually in the opposite direction where you go up to altitude for a competition because whilst that's far less common, it does happen. Yeah. And but anyway, like among the among the early um, drivers of live high, train low were guys Robert Chapman, Benjamin Levine, and in 2014, they brought a paper out called "Timing of Return from Altitude Training for Optimal Sea Level Performance." Like exactly what you're after. Just what okay? I'm <laughs> And so, so they discuss in this paper about how some athletes come back and within two days of arriving back at sea level, their performance is worse than it was at altitude. But if you test them two weeks later, then they are much better than before they went to altitude. So they seem to get worse before they get better. Other athletes are really good almost immediately upon arrival from altitude. So that that could be an individualized response and it could be a consequence of the training that was done at altitude. So if an athlete at altitude was doing higher quality sessions that were now compromised for the reasons we spoke about earlier, the running speed, the cycling part were just lower, it was forced lower. Then it makes sense that on coming back down, you have to restore that which was lost. Make sense? You've got to mm. regain that neuromuscular, the biomechanical, the metabolic, the specific intensity factors for your race whilst holding on to the hemoglobin levels for just long enough and you'll see that benefit 14 days so for that reason they've said you either got to do it really soon or give it a couple of weeks afterwards but nobody knows that for sure because it's never been shown and there's so much massive individual variation with respect to how athletes um respond to overtraining and then uh, not overtraining to altitude training and respond to return to sea level if that makes sense Does that, yeah. And so, probably the best advice is if you do altitude training regularly, you know, you're listening to um, this and you're someone who goes up to altitude, try one thing. And if you feel like that was a dud, then change it. But if it worked, then don't change it. You know what I mean? So, it's like. So, there's nothing to suggest that there are even parameters because there are so many variables. No, because it's too much. What we do know, for example, as I mentioned to you there, is that. Over the three to four weeks upon return from altitude, about half those hemoglobin gains you got are, are disappeared. So let's mm. say you go to altitude and you you get a nice healthy four to five percent boost in hemoglobin. Three weeks later, that's gone down by a couple percent, but you're still two and a half percent better than you were before. So your mm. your performance benefit still stands to exist. Whether or not it's realized is now going to be a function of what you did in those two to three weeks between altitude and the race because Mm -hmm. your training intensity at altitude might have been compromised so much that the sea level intensity now adds to the altitude and you get a cumulative effect with a better end performance. But if your training intensity hadn't been compromised at altitude, then maybe you would have been better off with the 4% hemoglobin boost and you would have produced your best performance within a couple of days of coming back. Yeah. And then you're only going to get worse from that point onwards. Make sense? That would make sense, yeah. So so it'll depend on it'll depend on that. But but again, we're always talking about hemoglobin. I'm still thinking here glycolytic enzymes went up. Your oxidative capacity 
and your ability to use fatty acids actually goes down at altitudes. It's been documented, for instance. Hmm. And again, table one of the um, the Gore paper, Philo Saunders Gore, and, and uh, let me make sure I give you everyone, David Pine. They've got a table here where they describe that over time at altitude, what happens is you increase your reliance on carbohydrates and you decrease free fatty acids. If you're an endurance athlete, that's not good. Mm. You want to race with as little carbohydrate utilization as you can. The whole point of endurance training is to drive more free fatty acid oxidation. So maybe that athlete's worse upon arrival back from altitude and needs a two-week period to correct that without losing the hemoglobin. Now we're golden because we get the best of both. Makes sense. Mm. So... I'll read, for instance, like Chapman concluded, that the best time to return from altitude prior to a major competition remains undocumented from a physiological standpoint, and each athlete may display their own unique signature of de-acclimatization. Individual complexities in post-altitude camp hinge on many factors, including acute and chronic fatigue from the camp itself. Because remember, you 35% more training maybe. Yeah. Like you race two days off that. Yeah, it's not got anything to do with altitude. You're just tired. <laughs> Right, so there's that. Uh, the phase of training, jet lag, again, because if my altitude camp was in Boulder, I need two weeks just to get back to time mm. zone. And the time course decay of the hemoglobin mass, mass, although typically that, as I say, that hemoglobin lasts for at least a few weeks, as long as you've got a nice boost in the first instance. So mm. it, it varies. And some athletes will do it where they'll come down from altitude four or five days and they'll be flying on day five or six. And then you can hold that for three, four weeks. And like we're a pool now. When when's the Vuelta start? Uh, a couple of weeks from now, I think, after the World Champs. Straight after, or is no, it? I think it's two weeks. I don't know exactly. But uh, so it'd be interesting. For instance, does does Evenepoel come from altitude camp, race San Sebastian, win it, race World Champs, like maybe win it? Who knows? We'll do a prediction at the end, um, and then go back to altitude for a week-long top-up if he has the window or does he just stay at sea level, recover from world champs and go into Vuelta carrying altitude plus, I suspect, the latter. I don't think he'll go back. So, yeah, it's all it's all very interesting. But there's different models and nobody really knows is the frustrating answer. Yeah. And yeah. it's what one thing we do know is if you're going the other way, if you've got a compete at altitude, now that doesn't happen often. Happened, for instance, 1968 Mexico Olympics, right? Happens when you come to play rugby matches in South Africa. I can't think of many, or if you're playing a football match against Bolivia. There's mm -hmm. not many, or American football in Denver. When should you go to altitude? And the answer is as early as you can. Because there used to be thought that there was a window in which you could get in and out before altitude hit you. That's it's right. Yeah. Completely, to talk about that. completely false. <laughs> so yeah. they've done studies. One of them was Western et al. here in South Africa where they flew them, I think, from Durban up to Johannesburg, tested them literally like an hour off the plane, five hours, next morning, next day. You only ever get better. Mm. It's not like you're good when you land and then you get worse a day or two later and then you start improving. So there's no, there's no sneaking in and out before, before someone catches you. The altitude yeah. is not, it's not like a security guard waiting to like grab you when you break in and steal something. You know what I mean? Yeah. You yeah. go in. And you just get better and better. And then Karsten Lundby, the, the aforementioned, they took guys up to 2,340 meters and found exactly the same thing. Is There's no 
better before you get worse. You just get one day after the next. You just continually improve. So the earlier you can get to altitude, the better you'll be as well. Mm. Yeah. Just as a uh, bit of interest, 26th of August to the 17th of September is the Vuelta. So, so that's interesting because then from, world, after, world, from champs. world Champs, because like he does the road race now on Sunday, which is the 6th of August. Um, and then I'm not sure when the time trial is, but then the, the Vuelta is the 20? 26th of August. So, I mean, you could have two weeks. I wonder if 10 days at altitude for a little top-up or something. It depends. But again, you see, this depends on what the training they want to do is. Because if you want to go into that welter with sharp and you need, and as a consequence, you need to do quite a bit of high-intensity, 20-minute hard work and so on, mm. then I'm not sure altitude is the way to get that. But if they feel that he's got that and he just needs a, a little boost and they don't want to get that boost from pharmacy. Yeah. <laughs> then maybe you, you consider going up to, to something like that. It'll be yeah. interesting to see. Keep an eye on his Strava and yeah. see, see what happens with it. You know? yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, there we have it. Uh, an interesting discussion on a subject which we all take for granted, but there are lots of variables at play when it comes to altitude training. So uh, some in- useful insights from all the research that Ross has been spent the last couple of days doing. So thank you very much, Professor Ross Tucker. And uh, lovely to see you having experience of that, really, because you were right there at high altitude experiencing it for yourself, which kind of led... No, no benefits. Well, we don't know that yet because we haven't really been for a proper ride yet since you've been back. But yeah. if you're disappearing away from me... And I know why. Although yeah. you normally do anyway. So that's yeah, I don't again. feel like I got any benefit at all. I feel like I just got massively overtrained. You were, supp- you were supposed to come back and do a time trial to see whether you were better up your normal routes, but I you didn't do that. should have been more systematic about yeah, it, but exactly. I didn't think to For do the that. Sake of the podcast. I, I can pretty much guarantee <laughs> that I would be worse. All right. Just, I just felt absolutely overtrained. But you also had a lot of jet lag. There was that. So that does also affect fatigue. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Many thanks, Professor Rostaka, and we'll chat to you next time. Thank you for listening to the Science of Sport podcast. Follow us on Twitter at SportsSciPod and on Instagram at Science of Sport Podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.